invite you to open your Bible with me to the book of 1 Timothy uh, as we begin a new series of messages entitled, uh, the series is Life Together, and uh, over the next five months from now through August, we're going to work through uh, Paul's epistle to Timothy um, that I pray will prove helpful and strategic for us as a church. In this letter, an older seasoned pastor, Paul, is writing to a younger man, Timothy, who is starting to pastor his first church. And the aim of the letter is twofold. First, Paul writes to provide practical advice for being a faithful pastor. This is how to do it. This is the focus. These are the priorities. Certainly principles that all of us could emulate in our own lives. And then second, Paul writes to provide instruction for how a church should function. These are the priorities for the church, which is relevant uh, to all of us. If you have your Bible there, go to chapter 3, verse 14 and 15. This is really the key uh, to the whole letter. And so 1 Timothy 3, verse 14, these things I write to you, though I hope to come to you shortly, but if I am delayed, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the church, in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the ground of truth. That's the kind of the main emphasis through this whole letter. I was thinking this week how differently I read this letter than how I used to read this letter 40 years ago. Years ago, when I first became aware of Paul writing to Timothy, I was very young. I was in a, a preparation stand, a stage going into pastoral ministry. And so as I read this letter, I read it like I was sitting with young Timothy, listening from Timothy's perspective like a sponge, soaking up everything that Paul said, trying to learn what I needed for myself and what I needed to know for the church and what I would need one day as I started pastoring. Well, now 40 years later when I read this letter, I find myself sitting with Paul, thinking much less about myself, instead thinking, first, how can I encourage others, especially those who are younger in the body of Christ, and second, how can I help guide the church? What counsel is there here available to me and to all of us that would build up and bless others? So with that said, read with me starting in 1 Timothy chapter 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the commandment of God our Savior and the Lord Jesus Christ, our hope, to Timothy, a true son in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. As I urged you, when I went into Macedonia, remain in Ephesus that you may charge some that they teach no other doctrine, nor give heed to fables and endless genealogies which cause disputes rather than godly edification which is in faith. For the purpose of the commandment is love from a pure heart, from a good conscience, and from sincere faith, from which some having strayed have turned aside to idle talk, desiring to be teachers of the law, understanding neither what they say nor the things which they affirm. But we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous person, but for the lawless and insubordinate, for the ungodly, for sinners, for unholy and profane, for murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers and manslayers, fornicators, sodomites, for kidnappers, liars, perjurers, and if there is any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which was committed to my trust. So invite us to pray together. Father, teach us today, speak through your word, invite your Holy Spirit to give us ears to hear your voice with earnest expectation of you removing all dross and apathy from us, 
We pray for you to bring forth change, transforming us, growing our faith in you and in your word that we would live differently than we have lived in our past. The stronger will and passion to do all that you say, more useful unto your purposes and service. For the glory of Christ, we pray. Amen. I want you to begin to notice here, right at the very start, in the opening, the structure of the letter. It's different than how we structure letters today. The sender is presented first, and then the recipients come second. Verse 1, Paul is listed first as the author, as the sender. And then from verse 1, he mentions four things about himself. So if you have your Bible open, all four things right there as he describes himself. I am, he says first in verse 1, an apostle, one who has been sent, one to represent the Lord Jesus Christ, something that Timothy already knew. He was aware of Paul's apostolic authority. Second, Paul says in verse 1, my apostleship was not by choice. Rather, he says it was by God's command, by his calling. And if you remember in Acts chapter 9, prior to his conversion, Paul is persecuting the church. As he is as sinful as anyone could be. In fact, he actually in one place in Scripture, he says, I was the chief among sinners. No one was sinning like I was sinning. But God convicts him on that Damascus road and stops him. God gets Paul's undivided attention and humbles him, puts him in the dust, and prepares him to hear the gospel. Then he raises up a witness named Ananias. And he says, Ananias, I want you to go and share with him good news. And as he goes, you remember, God saves Saul, who becomes the apostle Paul. And in Acts chapter 9, verses 15 and 16, God tells Ananias, this man is a called, chosen instrument of mine to carry the gospel to the nations, to the Gentiles and Jews, and he is going to suffer greatly for my name's sake. All of us are called to be Christians. The Holy Spirit speaks, moves, convicts, as of sin and righteousness and judgment in order that we would be saved. And he calls us to serve and to use our gifts all for his glory to advance his good news to the nations. But there is also an additional type of call in Scripture that God places upon pastors and sometimes missionaries. It's a kind of vocational call, even to the point of being financially supported by the church, which Paul mentions here later in, as we'll see in this letter. So he's an apostle. He didn't choose that for himself. He was apostle by God's calling, by command. And third, just to be clear, he says God is our Savior. God is the one who saves. He's the Savior. In Acts chapter 9, if you go back, Paul's salvation was entirely by the grace of God. Sure, he repented and acknowledged his sins and placed his faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, but all of the saving was God's work. The conversion, the regeneration, the new birth, it's all God's work. More recently, as I continue to learn and think more deeply about Scripture, I've changed my language personally of how I describe a person being saved and changed in the way that I describe my own salvation. Less and less that I prayed when I was a young boy, that I believed the gospel, that I repented of my sins, that I trusted Christ, that I joined the church, I, I did this, I did that. Less and less about that and more and more intentionally with my verbiage on God. How the Holy Spirit spoke to me and how the Holy Spirit convicted me and how the Holy Spirit drew me and indwelled me and produced change and how God heard me and how God saved me and how God forgave me. There is a, a difference. And I want to encourage all of us. You grew up in the same tradition that I grew up. as a Baptist tradition. And most of our language about our salvation and our conversion is about us and what we did how we invited 
Christ into us. We called on him. And to some degree, there's truth to all of that. We do place our faith in Christ and we do repent and we do trust. But in the reality, I think we need to use more and more of our language to describe God and what God did in us. You see, because theologically, uh, our words reflect what we believe about God. And so I just want to encourage all of us to think more deeply about that. When you talk about being a Christian, talk more about what God did, bringing glory and honor to him and less and less about what we did. Words reflect theology. We say what we believe. And I just think there's too much talk in our churches on ourselves and little, too little about God. The fourth thing that Paul mentions in this intro about himself is he adds a word about hope. Paul says, our hope is in Christ. We sing about it. All of our hope for the future is in Christ. All good gifts, all perfect gifts are from God. All of our hopes in this present life, being blessed and good relationships and all that God does, all of our hope is in Christ. And certainly for eternity, all of our hope is in Christ. The last few weeks with several families of our congregation who've lost loved ones in their, you know, their families, I, I think more and more about the blessed hope that we have in Christ. And the blessed hope that the Bible refers to his return, to his coming again. And so four things we see regarding the sender. Paul was an apostle by God's command. He, God is his savior and Jesus Christ is our hope. Then consider the recipient. To Timothy, my true son in the faith. Paul was his spiritual father. Paul was the one who encouraged his faith and strengthened him, the one who mentored him and provided guidance as a young Christian man and in ministry. If you notice in verse 2, Paul said he loved him. May God's grace and mercy be, his peace be yours, Timothy. And over the years, these two brothers grew close and they cared for one another. And by the way, I would add that grace, mercy, and peace is what kept Paul and Timothy close, and it's the same for us. You and I as a Christian family relate to each other and are bound together by God's grace, his mercy, and his peace. It's what binds us. So what do we know else about Timothy? Besides Paul being his spiritual father, his mentor, we know several things. First, he was young. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 12, he says, let no one despise or look down upon your youth. A few years later, when he writes the second letter, in chapter 2, verse 22, he tells Timothy, he warns him, flee from youthful lusts. So Timothy perhaps is in his 20s or late 20s, early 30s, when he is starting to pastor this church, having been a companion for, with the apostle Paul for 15 years. And so we know he was young. Second, we also know that he was timid. Timothy was shy, perhaps a bit more of an introvert because Paul encourages him in the second letter in verse one. Timothy, remember this. God has not given you a spirit of shyness. God has not given you a spirit of timidity or fear, but of love and a sound mind. We also know that Timothy had some physical issues, had some health issues, the Bible says that he suffered from some gastric problem, something with his stomach. For in 1 Timothy 5, 23, Paul reminded him of a medicinal prescription. He says, no longer drink water, but use a little wine for your stomach's sake and for your frequent infirmities. I'm not sure that's why all folks today are drinking wine today for frequent infirmities. And then finally, we know that Timothy was doctrinally solid. He was sound in doctrine. Think about this. He spent over 15 years with the Apostle Paul, traveling everywhere he went, serving, preaching, involved in almost all of the churches that Paul planted. Timothy was right there serving at his side. Timothy was with Paul when Paul wrote most of the letters that we have here in the New Testament. And so he gained much experience and he was sound in doctrine. Young, timid, 
Timid had some health issues, but was a loyal, dependable servant devoted to doctrine. And so as I consider a few other things here that specifics in the text, I want to just, to make a point, I want to go back just for a moment and consider, review with you the background. This kind of lays the groundwork for everything that we're going to see. The background between these two brothers' relationship. What do we know about the previous 15 years between Paul and Timothy? Well, if you remember in Acts chapter 13, the church at Antioch, that's where they were, where Paul starts from. Church sends Paul and Barnabas out. They sail west on their first mission trip to Cyprus, and they eventually go up to Perga and to Iconium and find themselves in a city called Lystra. Lystra was Timothy's hometown. In Acts chapter 14, let me read a couple of verses where Luke records what happens there in Lystra. In Acts chapter 14, 19 and 20, it says, Then Jews from Antioch and Iconium came there, and having persuaded the multitudes, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, thinking him to be dead. However, when the disciples gathered around him, he rose up and went into the city, and the next day he departed with Barnabas to Derbe. That happened in Lystra. That was Timothy's hometown. And the Bible says that after they stoned Paul and thought he was dead, that witnesses gathered around him, and it's likely that Timothy was one of those disciples, one of those witnesses who saw the whole thing. We know that Timothy's mother was named Eunice. She also was a disciple of Jesus. He had a a grandmother named Lois, also a disciple of Christ. And Paul says, those two women, your mother and grandmother, are the ones who taught you the faith, who grounded you in Scripture. So Paul, after being beaten, probably Timothy, that being his hometown, witnessing all of that, the Bible says that he leaves. He goes to the next town, to Derby. And once he's in Derby, he ministers there for a while. And then he goes back to Lystra, Lystra as he makes his way back to Antioch. And as he went back to Lystra, it's a strong possibility that he and Timothy begin to become more acquainted and connect a little bit more. He eventually gets back to Antioch and to his home church, and he rests and reports. And then you know the story. The church sends Paul out on a second trip, this time with Silas. And they go back visiting some of the previous cities where they had done ministry and they eventually make their way back to Lystra. And in Acts chapter 16, this is what happens regarding Paul and Timothy as he makes his second trip there. Listen, starting in verse 1. Then Paul came to Derbe and eventually to Lystra. And behold, a certain disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a certain Jewish woman who believed, but his father was a Greek. His dad wasn't a Christian. He was kind of a Greek pagan. Verse 2, Timothy was well spoken of by the brethren who were at Lystra and at Iconium. Paul wanted to have him go on with him. And he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in that region. For They all knew that his father was a Greek. And as they went through the cities, they delivered to them the decrees to keep which were determined by the apostles and elders at Jerusalem. So all the churches were strengthened in the faith and increased in number daily. So it's on this second trip that Paul, the Bible says, invites Timothy, why don't you join with me? Why don't you connect with Paul, with myself and Silas as we continue to do ministry? And so Timothy goes with them. Timothy is with these two brothers when they're in the city of Philippi and Berea and Athens and Corinth and Thessalonica. And he was with Paul when he goes to Ephesus. And as Paul began to preach the gospel and lead people to faith in Christ, Timothy was right there when that church was planted. When it was conceived, Timothy was involved. And then at the end of that trip, they make their way back to Antioch. They rest and report again. Timothy stays with him, never leaves him from this point. And eventually a third trip develops, and Timothy is also sent out with Paul, and they revisit many churches, and in particular, they go back to Ephesus. And the Bible says in the book of Acts 
they invest three years when they get back to the city of Ephesus. So they'd planted the church. Now they go back. And, and I want you to think about why would Paul spend three years investing in that one church in the city of Ephesus? Timothy right by his side. Well, we probably felt that that's where God wanted them to stay. And the Bible says that they strengthened the disciples, they build it up, they're teaching the scriptures, they're discipling others, and they're establishing leaders in the church. It's described in the book of Acts. And then they leave after three years, Timothy with him. He says he tried to get back to Jerusalem before Passover, and he gets back there, and then the story goes, history goes, that he is arrested by Jews He's kept under arrest in Jerusalem for two years. He finally, seeing that he's not going to get out of this, the Jews are not going to allow him politically to be released from prison. He makes an appeal to Caesar, and then he's transferred to Rome. He spends two more years in house arrest there in Rome, and Timothy is with him the whole time. After two more years in a house imprisonment in Rome, He's finally released, and he and Timothy, guess where they go? They go back to Ephesus, back to Ephesus, and there where they had served together, and they go back to that same church, and they serve continually. And upon their revival, arri arrival back in that city of Ephesus next time, we don't know how long they stay, a while, but it had been four or five years since they were there when they spent those three years. So they're there three years investing, putting into the church. They're gone now for four or five years. He's finally re released from a Roman house arrest, and they go back there, and they continue to serve. What Paul foresaw earlier happening to that church when he left, something that he feared would happen, Something that he warned them about that might happen, happened. The church's leadership had regressed. The church leaders were not doing better spiritually. The church leadership regressed and they were drifting and they spiraled downward. Especially in the area of doctrine. And so, let me explain this to you. At the end of Paul's third missionary journey, remember he was trying to get back to Jerusalem before Passover. He and Timothy still traveling together. They eventually travel south, and they come down from the Macedonian area, traveling by ship from the port in Troas. They go down the coast 150 miles till they arrive in a city called Miletus. Miletus was only 20 or 30 minutes or 20, 30 miles from Ephesus. And so in Acts chapter 20, verse 17 Paul sends a message from Miletus to the elders at the church of Ephesus. And he said, I want you elders to come and meet with me. And the Bible says these elders came. And when they arrived, Paul begins sharing a closing message with them, exhorting them and encouraging them. And I want you to notice there is a warning. Over in Acts chapter 20, if you have your Bible, you may want to go there and read this with me. But he warns them. Look at Acts chapter 20, starting at verse 28. Therefore, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock. Take care of the flock among you, which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers or elders and pastors. Shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. And there's the warning, for I know this that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also from among yourselves, men in the church will rise up, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. Therefore watch and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. So now to these elders... Brethren, pastors, I commend you to God and to the word, the doctrine of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you an, an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Look at verse 36. 
And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And they all wept freely and fell on Paul's neck and kissed him, sorrowing most of all for the words which he spoke, that they would see his face no more. And they accompanied him to the ship. What did Paul warn them about? He said, there's going to be individuals, men who rise up in the church And he specifically tells the elders, these spiritual overseers, take good care of the flock, shepherd them. These wolves will come in and ravage the church. These men will come in speaking perverse things, false doctrine, heresy, pagan things. They will distort the word, drawing attention to themselves, trying to get everyone in the church to follow them, trying to get everyone to place their allegiance to them which is what happened. Having been gone four to five years, the church leadership had gone bad. And so when Paul was released from prison, he and Timothy go back to Ephesus, they begin serving. And one of the things that Paul does, the very first thing that we see in scripture that he does is he addresses the issue of the church's leadership. Leadership in the church. And he personally confronts a couple of prominent leaders in the church, men who either were placed into these elder leadership roles by the church or men who manipulated things and positioned themselves into those roles. You say, how do you know that? Well, because we're going to see what Paul does. You see, they didn't need to be leaders, but they were. And they were teaching false doctrine, heresy, creating division and controversy in the church. Let me give you, if you have your mind, go to chapter 4, 1 Timothy. We see a couple, just a couple of examples of these false teaching. 1 Timothy chapter 4, look at verse 1. And the Spirit expressly says that in the latter times, this is what Paul is warning Timothy about as he pastors this church, some will depart from the faith giving heed to deceiving spirits and what? Doctrines of demons, speaking lies in hypocrisy, having their own consciences seared with a hot iron, forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For every creature of God is good and nothing is to be refused if it's received with thanksgiving and is sanctified by the word of God in prayer. Just a couple of examples of the false doctrine. Forbidding marriage. Can you imagine people in the church rising up and saying forbidding marriage and forbidding certain kinds of foods? Judaism, legalism had crept into the church and It became steeped in rules, keeping rules and regulations where if you don't keep the rules that I think you should keep, then you're not as spiritual as I am. So liberty in Christ was lost, rules and legalism began to control the church. And I I believe that there are people today who are turned away from the body of Christ, who turned away from churches because of churches being legalistic. He also provides some evidences of Gnosticism there that all of us contain a divine spark that God is in all people and therefore what our bodies do is insignificant. It doesn't matter. All that matters is what we do spiritually because everything physical like the body is temporary anyways, which led to a lot of immoral lifestyle and living. I want you to go back to our text, 1 Timothy chapter 1. One of the first things that Paul does is he confronts these brothers, these prominent leaders in the church who are teaching false doctrine. Look at verse 18. This charge I commit to you, son Timothy, according to the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you may wage the good warfare. Writing to a young pastor, wage the good warfare. Having faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected concerning the faith and have suffered shipwreck. And he names these two prominent leaders, of whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I 
delivered to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. So he singles these brothers out, these poor leaders who are teaching distorted doctrine, Hymenaeus and Alexander, men who he said rejected the faith and good conscience and made shipwreck not only of their faith, but if allowed to continue to distort the word, lend themselves to making shipwreck of the faith of others. And so what does the Bible say that Paul did? He said he confronted them as teachers, as leaders in the church, and removed them. He removed them from their leadership roles as teachers, as elders, as pastors of the church. And not only did he remove them from their leadership roles, he said he removed them from the church altogether and delivered them to Satan. He said, what does that mean? It means he not only removed them from leadership roles, he removed them from the church, setting them outside the care and the protection of the church for the purpose, he says, of them learning and growing, learning not to blaspheme. And so what you have here is as the church begin to drift away from their spiritual moorings because of poor leadership, Paul goes to the church and he starts cleaning things up. How, did it, how difficult do you think that must have been? Do you think when Paul confronted Hymenaeus and Alexander that those brothers welcomed it and went along with it? Do you think there was spiritual fallout in the church? Do you think that Paul was criticized? Do you think the membership all supported it and went along with it when he began to clean things up biblically and spiritually in the church? Or does it just need to be left alone? We all know it needs to be done, Paul, but the reality is these kinds of leaders, if we go about this, there's going to be a mess. There's going to be a ruckus in the church. And the reality is they never should have been placed into those leadership roles to begin with. What's the application? The application is for all of us as Hillcrest family, as a congregation, the body of Christ, to be wise and prayerful and guided by Scripture and patient and to seek the Holy Spirit before we ever select leaders. Deacons, staff members, leaders of ministries, careful, prayerful, patient, guided by the scriptures and the voice of the Holy Spirit. Because once in place, once they're on the bus and they're not in the right seats, it's messy cleaning things up. Someone told me a long time ago, as a professor in Bible class, he said, you young pastors, you preacher boys, be careful giving matches to monkeys. Because monkeys, in a, in a few minutes, can take some matches and burn down in minutes what it's taken years to build. But God, working through the Apostle Paul as a faithful pastor, using his pastoral authority, goes to work and does some things that need to be done. And I can tell you that I've, something I've learned over the years, 40 years of pastoring in the church. Sometimes things in the church, there are things, leadership issues that need to be addressed, but we don't want to do it. And so we just kind of put it off and let things limp along. Well, you know how he is, and you know how she is. They've always been that way, and so we just leave things alone and let things limp and drift along and pay the price. Instead of being fearful about what will happen if we deal with it, we don't think about what could happen if we do deal with it. Then in verse 3, Paul leaves he leaves Timothy there as a pastor of this church, goes to Macedonia, and then sometime later, we don't know how much, he writes this letter back to him for Timothy's benefit, to guide him, principles for all of us, instruction for the church, something good for all of us, and he provides Timothy with a strategy to set the church in order, to build it up. And he says specifically two things, establish godly leadership, which we'll see more about in coming weeks, and in particular, he says, Timothy, Pay close attention to doctrine. Pay close attention to what you are preaching, 
what you are teaching, pay close to your doctrine and also pay close attention to what's being taught by others. He doesn't tell Timothy to babysit people for silly things. He doesn't tell Timothy to try to meet everybody's expectations. He's not there to win a popularity contest, but to establish a group of identified leaders, elders, and deacons, and teachers who oversee the flock, who are sound in doctrine, and minister the word, mature men. And that means there had to be some theological training that was provided. So the first thing we see is Paul provides this strategic advice. He addresses in the letter is the church's doctrine and what's being taught. As I urged you, he said, before I left, and so urges him, before I left and went into Macedonia, continue to address this matter of doctrine, yours and theirs. And he's kind of later in that first chapter, he says, Tim, they already confronted the ringleaders. They've already been expelled. Now you carry it through, instruct men, charge them, command them not to teach anything but apostolic doctrine, no more heresy. And he says, I urge you, I plead with you, I implore you, I beg to you with emotion and passion to remain. Remain there. Don't leave, Timothy. Don't quit. Don't be intimidated. Don't stay with it. And so perhaps there was some indication that after Paul left and Timothy started going to work, he may have felt like he wanted to leave. Things got tough, engaged in spiritual warfare, the enemy was attacking, he's being criticized, and so the easiest thing to do is, I think I'll just go back home to Lystra, go back to my mom's home-cooked meals, and go back to my grandmother, go back to my family, go back to familiarity. Paul says no. Stay with it. I urge you to stay put. Use the full weight of your calling and apostolic authority. And I want you to notice in chapter 1, verse 3, he says, charge some. The word charge means command, that they teach no other doctrine. 1 Timothy 1, 18, command. He commands them to wage good warfare. In 1 Timothy 6, 20, he says, guard what's been entrusted to you. And he, Paul, Paul reminds him in verse 5, and I'm getting ready to get in some application because some of you are probably like, what in the world in the world is he going with that? Notice in verse 5, he says, bad doctrine, false teaching, weak teaching will never produce love in the church. Rather, he says, it's sound teaching, it's sound preaching, the ministry of the word that God will work through with the Holy Spirit producing love, love towards God and love towards one another. You remember Jesus said, what's the most important command? You can know all the scripture you want to know inside and out, but if you don't love God and love people, you don't really know much. And he said, the mark of knowing that you are my disciples, that you are my people, my church, is they will know who you are by the way you love people, by the way you treat people. I want you to think about this. One of the fruits of the Spirit is love. Amen? Love, the very first fruit of the Spirit listed in Galatians 5.22 love. Paul is saying that this love is produced how? By the Holy Spirit through sound doctrine, through the ministry of the Word, hearing God. The Holy Spirit works through the Word to produce love for God and for other people. And that love, he says, will be accompanied by three things. Look, he says it in the text, by purity, a pure heart, just being clean before God, a good conscience, that inner voice that we have been, that God has placed with us that helps to guide us in right from wrong to affirm or to accuse us, and sincere faith, a faith without pretense, without a faith that is genuine, a faith that he, he writes to the Thessalonians about an unfeigned faith, a genuine faith. Paul is writing Timothy, and he says, none of this will happen in the church through false teaching and heresy. Nor any of it will happen in the church through false teaching's first cousin. What is false teaching's first cousin? Heresy, false teaching, teaching things that are just contrary to Scripture. 
What's the first cousin to false teaching? It's weak teaching. Weak teaching. False doctrine, weak doctrine causes men and women, followers of Jesus Christ. Verse 6, he says to stray, to stray, to stray from these things he's just listed, love for God. They will stray from loving one another. They will stray from purity and a good conscience and a genuine faith and perhaps would end like Hymenaeus and Alexander making shipwreck of the faith. History records something very encouraging. Timothy remained as a pastor of that church for 30 years, maintained his post, held to his convictions, and in 97 AD, at the year, at 80 years of age, still pastoring the Ephesian church, while trying to halt a processional in honor of the goddess Diana, while he was publicly preaching against it, the Bible, the history records an angry mob beat him, dragged his body through the streets, and stoned him to death. Let me close. I came across a Pretty good quote this week from Gene Getz. By the closing, just means I got the landing gear down, so we're getting there. There's this quote that I came across. When the church is not sound and solid in doctrine with excellent teaching, you can expect these results to surface. And he lists them. Disunity, vested interests, personal agendas of the members, people in the church who want things their way, power moves, working behind the scenes to make sure things go my way, ego, ego issues, divisions. It's kind of a continual kind of church life where everybody's upset at everybody. He says those will be the results of weak teaching. Let me close with a few thoughts. First, a warning or a realization. One of the surest ways to weaken a church, to weaken the congregation, is through weak teaching and weak preaching. And I will say this also to you. It's, it's an acquired appetite. And I know sometimes people mean this in love, but I will tell you this, just personally, it does get under my skin a little bit. When people joke around and make comments about the length of a teaching session or the length of the sermon, what that says is they've never acquired an appetite for the Word of God. Weak teaching, weak preaching will cause the church to be shallow. When we're staying on the milk instead of where members are bottle fed, give them a quick idea, a few couple thoughts and get us out. That's not what you see in Scripture. Never moving on to maturity, never moving on to meet, no spiritual transformation in their lives, but get the preaching over, get the teaching over so I can go home and watch Ole Miss and Mississippi State for three and four hours. But no appetite for the Word of God. The point is good doctrine, good teaching also requires preparation. Second Timothy, study to show yourself approved, a workman, who needs not be ashamed, but one who rightly divides the word of truth. It takes time to prepare, to teach, and to preach. And I'm going to commit to you before God that I and the staff are going to try to do everything we can to provide more and more teacher training. And to that end, I promise before God and all of you that I'm going to study and prepare my very best to minister the word to you in this church. And some of you may not like it because I might not be able to do everything and make every nursing home and every hospital and every ball game and every school play and every pre-marriage counseling session and every other kind of thing, all these expectations that a church this size has, but I'm going to commit to you that I'll study and prepare well to minister the word. And by God's grace, I will never serve you a meal that someone else cooked and I'll never serve you leftovers and rotten manna. And let me say this too, since I'm at it. When these expectations are so unrealistic and preachers are not studying and not preparing, trying to meet the demands and the expectations of everybody in the church, then the church has some responsibility for that happening. 
One of my aims for this series is also to help teachers, all teachers of all ages and all ministries, also those who are teaching the word in the home. First of all, by reminding you of the privilege of ministering the word. Yes, it's work, but it's an investment. And over the next five months, as we go through this letter, I'm going to do my very best to model and teach the Bible. It's a kind of a, hopefully this will be kind of a teacher training for you. In other words, how I'm going to preach through this text each week will be the same way that I would approach this as if I was teaching these lessons. If you want to write these down, I'll give you five quick things. I would get my Bible and my pen if I was preparing to teach third graders, Fifth graders, students, young adults, marrieds, I would do it the same way. And by the way, little kids deserve the best preparation and training just as much as the adults do. I'll take that children's class. I don't have to do much. That's wrong attitude. To sow seed in good soil. But I'd get along with God with a Bible, a pen, and a notebook, and I'd write, and I would do these things. I would ask five questions. Who wrote this? And what was going on when they wrote it? Second, who did they write to? And I would write down what I came up with. Third, why did they write it? What was the main message or the aim? I'd write that down. And then I'd get into the context of the text and I'd write down those ideas. And then I would prayerfully think over it, rewriting it in my own words, choosing the main points, and finally praying for the Holy Spirit to give me a teaching outline. I sat in a Sunday school class two weeks ago and the teacher was excellent. And you could tell she was well prepared. And if I was teaching, I'll tell you what I would not do. I would not wait until Saturday night and pick up a Sunday school quarterly and just read through what the writer wrote. As a rule, those quarterlies should be as a backup, a kind of last resort. Do you know when commentaries, came, quarterlies came out? 50, 60, 70 years ago when there were no commentaries and no internet and no teacher training. And so to help people, mostly people in rural communities, agricultural communities, they came up with quarterlies to help them. We shouldn't be relying on Sunday school quarterlies to teach the word of God. Instead to pray and think and listen and invest and write down what God gives you. Third you may not be aware of this, but this church needs some more teachers. More adults willing to step up and take on the serious responsibility of teaching and ministering the word. And hear me, some of you could do that. And I, I'd really like to ask you to sincerely pray this week and just think, God, do you want me to invest my life in your kingdom through ministering your word? Fourth, I want to challenge you all of you from Scripture, to commit yourself to being in community with others in Bible study. To be in community in Bible study. The context here is Sunday school. It still works. And if you don't like the Sunday school class that you're in, either work to make it better or find another one. But invest yourself. Number five, I would ask you to pray for those who teach the Word. And may God bless all of you who are investing your lives in, in Sunday school and teaching. and Not just Sunday school, but in Wednesday nights and teaching in the home. Minnie and I, last few weeks, have been trying to visit Sunday school classes just to get to know you better and to connect to, with more of you and to encourage you we're not there to spy on you. <laughs> but all of us, me and you, all of us can continue to learn to be better stewards of the word, more effective as teachers. I was thinking this week, if I only had two messages to preach to a church, if I only got two messages to preach to any church, what would they be? And I thought, first of all, I would say to them, stay clear on the gospel. Stay committed and clear on the gospel. And second, I would say, stay clear and devote attention to the ministry of the word and prayer in the church. That's what will build up and strengthen the church more than anything else. Sound doctrine, good teaching. Let me, let me uh, pray with you, and I'm going to invite our, our deacons to come this morning to the tables at this time. And for a response, we have the humble privilege this morning of coming to the Lord's table together, a time to remember the doctrine, the doctrine of what we're doing, that the Lord's Supper is rooted in the gospel, 
a reminder to all of us of his grace and his mercy and peace, all expressed in the gospel that binds us. And this morning, as you prepare to take the bread and the cup, the Bible says to examine yourselves, first to know if you, to know that you know you're a Christian. So if you're a Christian, you're invited to come. Also to ask, I'm in a right relationship with God and other people. And third, am I seeking the Lord with all of my heart to keep his commands? And after you've prayed and prepared, you come this morning. And after we've received this bread and the cup, we'll all take it together at the end as an expression of our unity in Christ. So you come as you're ready. Jesus took the bread. You know, he blessed it, prayed over it, passed it to disciples. They broke from it. He told them as often as you do this, remember the body of Christ that suffered and was broken for you. And likewise, he took the cup, prayed over it, passed it to his disciples and said, as often as you drink from this cup, remember, remember the gospel. Remember my death, my suffering for the forgiveness of your sins. So they took together. Amen. Amen. Let's stand together this morning as we sing a, a song of benediction. And uh, amen. Let's stand together. Okay. Let's sing, In Your Church, Lord, Be Glorified. In Your Church, Lord, Be Glorified. Be glorified in your church, Lord. Be glorified today.